Thanks, Daniel. It was beautiful. And I was really digging the Texas swing on the Sandra McCracken song. I thought that was really appropriate for somebody moving to Fort Worth. Uh, so Daniel, man, he does, he does a great job with our, with our music and all of the musicians that the Lord has provided for us, man. We, we, are, we are blessed um, here at Christ the King for sure. Um, I'd invite you to turn in your Bible, if you have one, uh, to 1 Samuel chapter 1. Um, we're, we are in a uh, mini-series of sorts in these four weeks of Advent, really just looking through different stories in the Bible and different episodes in the Bible uh, where God has showed up, uh, God has showed himself present uh, in the lives of people who have been hurting in one way or another. And this is one of those passages where we see that in a, in a really powerful way, um, in a really redemptive way. So this is uh, God's word from the book of 1 Samuel beginning in chapter, uh, in verse 1. There was a certain man of Ramatham Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah and the name of the other Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord. I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. 
Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. O Lord of hosts, thank you that you do see and hear and remember us. We pray that you would do so in this time this morning and even beyond that as we look to you as the God who is with us in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I had a friend who uh, last summer took, a, he lives in Colorado, he took a quick weekend getaway with his family. They rented an Airbnb over a weekend. It was a little bit west of Boulder in Colorado and they just went to hike and there's some lakes out there that they could play in and just kind of get a little bit of a change of scenery. And it was at the time when there were fires that were encroaching about that time to the west of Boulder. And so on one hike, my friend and his wife were standing on the trail and they were looking off in the distance and in the distance they could see the smoke they could smell the smoke it wasn't a threat to them but it was close enough obviously to be concerning to that area of the country and while they were looking there their son their 10 year old son was standing behind them on the trail and previously to that even though it was dry at that time water had come and had washed away a part of that trail to where it was unstable and so unbeknownst to them they were standing on a very vulnerable spot in the trail and the trail gave way beneath the feet of this 10 year old son and he fell He fell about five feet, but then he hit a slope and he went about 20 more feet down the slope into a whole bunch of overgrowth. And once he got down there, it all kind of closed up in over him. And you know, when you're disoriented like that and you don't know which way is up, he opened his eyes, he tried to get his bearings. He didn't know which way was up or down or east or west or north or south. All he could feel was that he was in the dark. He didn't even know how far he had fallen. He didn't know where his parents were. He simply felt at that moment completely alone. And that's a scary place to be. In the dark and completely alone. It's kind of a normative human experience. Maybe you have an experience that way of being, you know, kind of like shut out from light and disoriented. But things, I am sure, have come your way in your life that have knocked you off balance that have caught you off guard, that have surprised you, that have disoriented you, and have made you think that you might just be in this thing alone, that nobody else understands you, and maybe even God has abandoned you. Feeling alone, misunderstood, abandoned even by God, is actually a part of what it means to be a human being in this broken and fallen world, even as a Christian. The Bible is full of the lament of people that deeply love him, feeling abandoned by him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from the words of my groaning? Those were uttered by the psalmist, but they were also uttered by the only perfect human being who has ever lived, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what we have in 1 Samuel chapter 1 is a narrative, a story of someone who could have written a psalm of lament, a psalm of feeling alone and abandoned by people and alone and even for a time abandoned by God. And what I want us to see in this beautiful story are three things. 
The first is the weight of longing, the heaviness of the longing upon our shoulders. The second is the weight of longing transforming into the weight of praying. And finally, the weight of praying being answered through the glory of redemption. So first, let's look at the weight of longing. And I'm using in this point weight uh, as a heavy burden, W-E-I-G-H-T, the weight of longing. Profound sadness and grief at one's life circumstances are really part and parcel of what it means to live in this broken world. If you add to that the provocation by other people and then misunderstanding by other people, you have a recipe for a burden of feeling very alone in this world. And that is what Hannah experienced. First of all, in the weight of longing, you've experienced that weight of your circumstances, There are circumstances in all of our lives that can make us feel like we're the only ones. C.S. Lewis once wrote that the beginning of true and abiding friendship are when two people look at each other and one of them says, what, you two? I thought I was the only one. But loneliness is really the opposite. It's when you're going through something in your life and you look around and you you think to yourself, "I, I really truly believe I am the only one. Nobody can really understand what it is that I'm going through. Hannah felt like she was the only one. The glory of a woman in the ancient Near East was her progeny. And Hannah, though loved by her husband, could only conclude that she had been abandoned by God because her womb was closed and she was unable to bear children. This was not only valued as something that she had a desire for in her own heart, but in that time, that was the only way that a family's name could be carried on, which was very important. And it was actually one of the ways that, that, uh, that a family who aged was provided for in that culture, which was extremely important. So it was more than just, I'm not getting what I want. It's, this is a deeply, deeply, deeply painful situation. It was real. It was not immature. It wasn't selfish. The ability for women to conceive and bear children, after all, is ability that is created by God. And when that ability is either taken away or delayed for a time, it is a part and parcel and a deep and painful reminder of sin and brokenness in this world. Not just her sin, but the sin that causes things like this to happen in the life of people in this world. I can tell you this with certainty and without any reservation whatsoever, that in my years of pastoral ministry, I can honestly tell you that the most painful situations I have ever waded into were situations that involved grief and pain regarding one's children without, without any doubt whatsoever. It could be the weight of years and years and years of infertility and then joy, a pregnancy, and then a miscarriage. God, how could you do that? It could be the loss of a child late in pregnancy when you've stopped thinking about the loss of a child and you've started putting the crib together or you've started painting the nursery. 
It could be the sudden loss of a living child or it could be a life-changing event in the life of a child or a life-changing illness or a life-changing accident. We rightly grieve the loss and the pain of our children like nothing else. And Hannah is a sister in that grief. She is a sister in that grief and she, probably like you, if you've ever been through any of those situations, felt very much alone. Now that's not the only painful part of this story because you can also add to that life circumstance the weight of provocation. The text tells us in verse 2 that Elkanah had two wives. Parentheses. What's up with that? We need to talk about that for a second. We read the Old Testament And you're reading along in the Old Testament, all of a sudden you come across all these people who have more than one wife. But if you go back to the very beginning of the Bible, to Genesis chapter 2, God is very clear. Therefore, a man, one, shall leave his family and shall cleave to his wife, one, and the two shall become one flesh. God's design for marriage at the beginning, before sin entered the world, is super clear. One man and one woman join together in marriage. That is God's design for marriage. But very quickly after that design for marriage, sin entered the world. And after sin entered the world, one of the things that you see in the Old Testament particularly are men marrying multiple wives, even men that you know, we look up to like David and, and Moses and Abraham uh, and people like that. So what's happening there? Well, when you see polygamy in the Bible, you need to think about two things. First of it, the first thing is this. Polygamy is not God's design for marriage. God does regulate in the law of the Old Testament uh, polygamous relationships, people having multiple wives. The reason that he does that is because it is a redemptive step to restrain the abuse of sin. Because the woman in that situation in the ancient Near East was particularly vulnerable when a man had multiple wives. Just look at it here. Elkanah had two wives. One of them he gave some food. One of them he gave a lot of food. You know, one of them had children. One of them didn't. So the first thing is, is, that, is that polygamy is regulated in the Bible as a means of restraining and curbing sin and the abuses of it while not in ever endorsing it. Because the second thing that you see in the Bible is that every single time you see a man take multiple wives, every time, every time, it's painful and it results in bad things happening. Abram was supposed to have a child by his wife, Sarah. He got impatient. He married Hagar. It was a terrible situation. David was already married. David saw Bathsheba. David impregnated her. David killed her husband. David married her. Terrible situation. Solomon had multiple wives, many wives. And it was in part because of the multiple wives and the multiple children he had with those multiple wives that the whole nation of Israel split into two pieces. It was never a good situation, just like it is not a good situation here. 
That's not God's design for marriage. But back to this weight of provocation, because one of the things that you can see is a painful situation here. Uh, Living our lives as human beings in comparison with the lives of others is a very hard way to live. It's particularly hard when other people make it hard. Penina, it tells us in this text, relished the dinnertime conversation. Even though she had less food, she loved sitting around the table with all of her sons and daughters saying, Oh, dear children... God must be really angry at Miss Hannah. Just look at her over there eating all by herself when we're here at the table sharing this food together. She loved it. There's the weight of provocation. That weight is furthered by misguidance. Very often, even when you have uh, deeply suffered, if, if, if you've gone through something in your life, you probably know this. People who are trying to help you sometimes hurt you more. You should, I believe, give great grace to people who don't know what to say to you or don't know what to do to you when you have a very painful situation. But it is true that very often those kinds of things hurt more than they help. Like you're at the wedding of your cousin and your aunt comes up to you and, you know, puts her arm around you and says, oh dear, this you're going to be next. I just know it. You know, that's not helpful at the moment. Or when somebody that you deeply, deeply, deeply love dies and somebody comes up to you and even though tears are streaming down your cheeks says, you must be so happy they're in a better place. That's not helpful. Elkanah loved his wife, but he was not helpful. Am I not more valuable to you than ten sons and daughters? I think Hannah probably wanted to say, no, no. Not right now. He didn't enter into her pain. He loved her, but he didn't enter in the way God calls us to enter in. And finally, regarding that weight of longing, we see the weight of misunderstanding. I think one of the things that makes the weight of longing unbearable is when somebody who should know better makes it more painful for you. And this is what happened to Hannah in church in the temple. She's in the temple weeping, crying out to God silently. Her lips are moving, but she's praying in her heart. And the priest, the priest should know, he should know what it looks like when somebody's deeply in pain. He should know what it looks like when somebody is suffering. But we know from later on in Samuel that that, that Eli the priest had become callous to the ways of God. He was kind of punching the clock. His two sons were really scoundrels, Hophni and Phinehas. And he didn't recognize it. And he misread it for her being drunk. And he confronted her rather than comforting her. Can you see the weight of that? Hannah crying out to God, tears streaming down her face. And the priest coming up to you saying, how long are you going to get drunk, woman? Put down your drink. Ah, youch. That hurts. That hurts. All of these things. Your circumstances, the provocation of others, misguidance, misunderstanding, they all conspire together to make you feel like you are really alone. And maybe the God that you were just pouring yourself out to wasn't listening to you either. So what do you do when that kind of weight comes upon you? Well, that's when the weight of loneliness begins to transform into the weight of prayer. And by weight of prayer, I'm spelling that W-A-I-T. 
Because there are two things particularly that you learn about prayer from 1 Samuel chapter 1. And I'll tell you this, if these are the only two things that you ever learn about prayer and you actually put them into practice, I do believe that they would, they would transform your intimacy with God. They would transform and, and revitalize your spiritual life. The first of those is the posture of prayer. I'm not only talking about the bodily posture of prayer, I'm talking about the heart posture of prayer. The posture of prayer that we see in Hannah's prayer to God is simply to not hide yourself. To allow God to see you as you are, not in the way that you want to be seen by him. You don't, not the image that you want to create in front of God or other human beings, but simply to be seen as you are. It is to bring all of the weight of your longing out into the open because you trust God to know what to do with it. Hannah did this by running into the temple and giving into her sorrow. And the very best part of her prayer is simply the liberty and the freedom that she felt in front of God. The first act of truth-telling in prayer is to come to him as you are, not as we want him to think that we are. He already knows anyway. God does not need a lecture in theology in our prayer. He, he already knows theology. He wrote theology. What he actually desires in prayer is you. You as you are, because as the psalmist reminds us, a broken and contrite heart the Lord will not despise. That's the posture of prayer. The second thing we learned about is the content of prayer. The content of Hannah's prayer is majestic and intimate all at the same time. That's the beauty of it. It's majestic and intimate at the same time. It's a majestic prayer in that the way that she addresses God, O oh, Lord of hosts. Lord of hosts is a shorthand way of saying, as, oh, oh God who rules over all principalities and powers, who rules over all things, who rules over all kings and rulers, who rules over the cosmic powers of the universe. You are the God who rules over everything. You are the king of glory, mighty in majesty. But it's also intimate. O Lord of hosts, look upon your servant. Remember me. These are really amazing words if you stop to think about it. One of the things that we are meant to understand as we read from verse 1 in 1 Samuel chapter 1 is that Hannah and Penina and Elkanah were not quote-unquote important people. Look, just look at the way that it is written. There was a certain man. There was a dude. There was this dude from Ramatham Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, small town in an unimportant place, who had to travel to Shiloh to worship God. Basically, what Hannah is saying in her prayers, Oh, Lord of hosts, I'm a nobody from nowhere. But look upon me anyway. See me. Hear me. Remember me. And that begs a question of you and me. What freedom do you feel with the Lord? What's your posture before him in prayer? Is it proud? Is it resting on your accomplishments? Is it deal making? Is it, uh, I have done all of these things for you, and, and because I've done all these things for you, I need a little bit something back from you, Lord? Or is it simply a posture of openness and honesty coming to the Lord as you are? 
You know, as your pastor, I'm truly hopeful that one of the consequences, one of the diamonds that I'm hoping that we can dig out of all of the piles of coal in 2020 is that what I'm hoping is that at the end of this year, every single one of us at this church can be broken from what is illusory, and that is the illusion of our self-sufficiency. I mean, even right now, we can just look around. We're all wearing masks, right? Now, despite what you think about the wisdom or the efficacy of wearing masks, we're doing it. It's a reminder every single week that everything is not all right in the world, and we're a little bit out of control of a lot of those things, right? What 2020 can help us to do is to drop the pretense of our lives permanently. That would be a great gift of this year. A permanent discard of the weight of trying to prove to God and to the rest of the world that you have it all together and that you are in control of your own life. It's a burden. It's a heavy burden to care. It's better burden. It's a better to put on the burden of Jesus. The yoke, he says, that is easy and light. The yoke of Jesus is the yoke of freedom. The yoke that we carry around in Houston of trying to prove to God and to others that we're in control of everything is deeply heavy. We can be broken of that. It's a potential great gift of God from this year. But to what end would we do that? Would it just be to feel better? Is Hannah's prayer just cathartic? Well, the text tells us that she believed that she had been heard of the Lord. Eli quickly changed his tune and repented, actually, by blessing her. But what did God do? Well, it's here where we see that the wait ends with redemption. The weight of our longing leads to the waiting of prayer. The waiting of prayer ends in God's hearing, answering, and redeeming us to himself. It does not always mean that God gives us exactly what we prayed for, just like Hannah did here. But the words of verse 19 are powerful. The Lord remembered Hannah. Hannah had left the temple. She had gone back to her obscure you know, little town in the hill country of Ephraim. And God didn't forget her. He didn't just see her when she was worshiping in the temple. He saw her at home and remembered her. It's a beautiful thing. And from the unexpected womb of an unexpected woman, the Lord of hosts brought forth a son. And not just any son, as it turns out, a son whose name was Samuel, which means asked of God or heard of God, who would actually be used as an instrument in the hands of God to save the people of Israel from their enemies, both their external and their internal enemies, as it turned out. So what is the real answer to our longing? What's the real answer to the weight of our longing? The real answer is a Savior. The real answer is another who came from the unexpected womb of an unexpected woman to save all who trust in him from sin and death, from the weight of longing and the weight for rescue. His name is Jesus, Emmanuel, who is God with us. Jesus is the ultimate answer to prayer. He is the one who did not remain aloof from us. He is the one who came down and got into the muck of our lives by becoming a man himself. And because he has been tempted in all things, just as we are, yet without sin, can walk 
through the pain of life with us. When my friend's son disappeared from that trail 20 feet down into the brush below, he had a a few choices. He could have run back to the cabin and picked up the landline and tried to call call for help, call the search and rescue team. He could have tried to find cell coverage on his phone. He could have yelled around for help. But what my friend did was he actually dove, head first, actually, sliding down this hill head first into this pile of brush where his son was upside down and discombobulated and alone. Put his son on his back and crawled and climbed back up that slope to the safety of that trail. This, my friends, is what Jesus did for us. He did not stand aloof at his home in heaven and look down at us and say, what a mess. You guys are making a gigantic mess of this thing. My goodness, no. He dove in and came down. Places you on your back, on his back, if you trust in him. And he drags you by his strength and his power and his redemptive work, out of sin and death and into eternity with him. It is a beautiful thing. The wait for your Redeemer is over. He's here for you in Jesus. If you trust in him, if you walk with him, he promises to walk with you. He is God with us. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you did not remain apart and aloof but that you came down. Walk with us, we pray, not only this day, but throughout all of our lives into eternal life with you. In Jesus' name, amen.